0: even if we were crazy enough to do that we weren't even guaranteed we were going to get back out of that valley with you know after we left the trail so we had to make the hard decision to go back through those those godforsaken snowfields that we had just struggled to get through and it was it was just one of those bring yourself together moments Episode 14, Travis Parsons.
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast. Brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville.
0: And this is your other host, Travis Parsons.
1: From time to time, we will interview each other so you, the listener, can get to know a little bit more about us and a little bit more about the podcast. Travis um, is the co-founder of 180TAC with me. He is an adventure sports enthusiast and he has done a large variety of adventure sports, but today's podcast is primarily focused on motorcycles specifically dual sport motorcycles. So Travis, I told our listeners just a little bit about you. Take a few minutes to tell our listeners about yourself and your connection to dual sport motorcycles.
0: All right, thanks. I can do that. So my connection to dual sport motorcycles, I would say it started way back when I was a, a little kid. Um, I was from a, a Navy family, and which means I was born in Spain and uh, ultimately moved over to the United States after I was a year old and was moved around the around the country to multiple states. but I claim to be from Connecticut, that's where I was pretty much uh raised from the age of nine to twenty three when I finally moved out to Colorado and I bring that up because Connecticut is where I started riding my little mini bike it was a mini bike, a little Honda trail fifty that my parents had had you know back in the Uh, the 60s I guess it was when they all went camping and they would tote these little things around with them and ride around the campgrounds. Well by the time I was nine years old in Connecticut we had room to roam and you know property to ride on so my parents let me work on that mini bike and get it running and ride it around the property. That was really neat because uh, it gave me the first sense of kind of being off on my own, even though I was riding around on my own property, it it gave me a chance to go out and, and do something. It was on my own. It was my own mini bike and, and very cool. So I would make up these full on streets with stop signs and intersections in my yard. And, uh, and, uh, seriously, I would abide by the the laws of the roads on my own, in my own yard. Um, but the cool thing about that was even though I was playing, i was made to work on that mini bike and learn how to fix it if something broke it was one thing that my parents did do for me is is instill that in me so when i got older uh old enough to ride across the street we had some neighbors that had a bunch of farmland and i got old enough to take that mini bike across the street and that's what really allowed me to get out there and explore it really gave me the exploration bug i could go for you know, to a ten-year-old, felt like miles. It was probably a whole mile away from the house. But you know, at that age, that's everywhere. So that really gave me the bug. I was able to go take that mini bike out there, and I was able to ride along the, the streams and the rivers and explore the woods. I was able to ride out in the middle of a field and park that thing and sit under a couple of oak trees and just listen to silence. Um, and that really—that's what really hooked me at a very young age. We did a lot of other sports as a family, including downhill skiing, cross-country skiing. I spent a lot of time um, four-wheeling in the New England mountains. We did a lot of water skiing, but the one I always came back to, the one I truly adored and had a passion for, was that little mini bike and riding that thing around the woods.
1: Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so, Travis, bring us up to the present day. Um, how are you involved with dual sport motorcycling right now?
0: i you know I took a hiatus from riding motorcycles uh for quite a few years in fact um I would say about the age eighteen nineteen, I sold my motorcycle and and ended up buying a car um because I had friends and people to cart around and you can't do that with a motorcycle so you know i was uh I was off of motorcycles for quite a while, and it wasn't until oh, I don't know, maybe five years ago, six years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to buy another one. And that was one where I uh, found a good deal in Florida while living here in Colorado. And I decided to buy a a one-way ticket down to Florida and pick this bike up that I had bought and spent the next four days riding it back, back to Colorado. And that was a fantastic journey. But what got me into dual sport was that that motorcycle uh some listeners will know what it is. It's a V Strom. Um it was it was an on off road motorcycle, but that allowed me to ride it out to the trails and, and go explore some of the, the fire trails in Colorado. And just more and more I wanted to be on those dirt trails so I ended up whittling you know, whittling my motorcycles down to uh one of them being a, a Kawasaki dual sport, a lighter weight motorcycle and that's what I ride out in the woods today and have a ball with it.
1: So what exactly does dual sport mean to people who are not a, familiar with the term?
0: Um, it depends. And it used to be just a motorcycle that was genu- generally made to go on and off road. But we have so many little pockets of of the the motorcycle industry now that, a dual sport really is uh, is more of a 50-50 motorcycle. It's you know a dirt bike that can be ridden on the road because it's registered and has all of the uh, the DOT legal tires, turn signals. Um, you know there are other categories where bikes are more of a street bike and and have somewhat of the ability to go off road, and then there's others that are pretty much pure dirt bikes, and you wouldn't want to ride them very far on the road, but. Dual sport truly means that you can be comfortable on it for, you know, say an hour to to ride the, the road, you know, a secondary highway to get up to the trails and go ride the dirt.
1: Very cool. So why would you encourage people to uh, take up dual sport motorcycling?
0: You know, I think definitely dual sport motorcycling. I will answer for motorcycling in general, though. Um, motorcycling in general, provides the ability to, to get out and cover great distances, um, which is a benefit of a car or a truck. But by doing it on a motorcycle, it allows you to hear and taste and feel your environment while you're out there. Um, it requires you know, a heck of a lot more um, concentration on what you're doing. It can, can allow you to be with yourself, uh, in your own head, Working on the task at hand, which is, you know, riding that motorcycle and, and staying safe with it, but it's a, it's a meditative thing. I mean, when I can get out there, you know, even if I'm out there for an hour after a long work week, um, just an hour will erase all of the stress that came from that work week, you know, just being out there on a motorcycle.
1: Acclaimed nature photographer John Fielder invites you to attend one of his popular Colorado photo workshops. Got an expensive camera? Get a return on your investment by learning how to use it. John will cut you to the chase by showing you his fabulous five camera settings. That's all you'll need. Then learn from the best how to use your eye to compose photos along secret roads in one of John's favorite Colorado places, guaranteeing you amazing images. Great food, great scenery, and great fun at sunrise and sunset. Visit johnfielder.com for the complete 2015 schedule.
0: Hi, this is Joe Russ from South Africa, and you're listening to Adventure Sports Podcast.
1: This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast
0: is brought to you by 180 techcom 180tac manufactures premier backpacking and emergency products. Whether you need a backpacking stove for your week-long trek on the trail or an emergency stove for your bug-out bag, we have the tools you need. Visit www.180tack.com.
1: Well, Travis, you mentioned to us what hooked you on um, motorcycle sports as a kid, but you left the sport behind for a while, and now as an adult you've taken it back up again. Share with us a story, an amazing experience that you've had more recently that renewed your enthusiasm about motorcycling.
0: I think the, the big one would be just when I got that motorcycle back to Colorado from Florida. Of course, the, the journey back was fantastic. Loved every minute of it. But when I got it back here and realized that I could pack the thing up, you know, load it up with a tent and sleeping bag and, and clothes and whatnot and head out and do a few overnighters on that. Um, you know, I was used to backpacking or jumping in a Jeep and and going distances. But when I realized I could do that on a motorcycle and just go back into the the far reaches of the woods and be back there by myself and not be limited by car camping or limited by shorter distances because you're on foot, uh, that was the, the true hook, I think. And I think that has carried through my recent motorcycling activity as being one of the, the most exciting and interesting ways to uh, to be out there on a motorcycle.
1: You know, I uh, have much more limited experience with motorcycles, but one thing that I really noticed is that if you go into the wilderness on these rough roads in your four-wheel drive truck, right, then you still can't go fast. And if you tried to go fast, you're just going to beat your truck to death. Um, it's kind of uncomfortable and, and limits the distance, and, you know, you get bounced around and behind the wheel so much. But on a motorcycle, uh, two tires, and they're in line, and they dodge most of the bumps, and the ones that they hit, well, the motorcycle just managed so much better. So it, it seems like you can go triple the speed. It increases your range and gets you places that a four-wheel drive truck would have a very difficult time going. So um sounds like it would really open up the wilderness.
0: Yeah, it really does. I mean, uh, the the bikes are nimble, of course. Uh, just having a single track, you know, two tires in line um to worry about is a uh, is a lot nicer than having a, a jeep and having to worry about the inclines and angles that the jeep or, or truck are on. Um you can get up a lot, uh scramble up a lot steeper hills and just kinda of pick your way through and get a lot of places where vehicles just won't go, which goes back to my saying, you know, that we can get back into the, the far reaches, the little nooks and crannies of the woods and, and really enjoy it out there. It's not quite as uh as good or as nice as getting out there on foot in the backpack, there's uh there's definitely an upside to that as well. But it finds a happy medium between the two for sure.
1: So describe for us what it's like to be out there riding. Um let's say you're in the backcountry on on some four wheel drive road and um what's it like in the spring, the fall? Do you ever go in the wintertime? You know, what's the experience like?
0: Um We generally stay off the dual sports in the winter. Um, Any place where we like to ride in Colorado most likely has too much snow to contend with. Even uh, spring and late spring, we can run into issues with that. Um, But being out there, I mean, it's just a fantastic way to do it. The like I said, I mean the sights, the smells, the feel. You're you're working with the bike. You're kind of one with the bike. Where in a car, you're just kind of sitting there as a passenger behind steel and glass. On a motorcycle, you're truly noticing what the gearbox is is doing. You're truly noticing what the suspension is doing. Um, to be out there in the in the sights and smells and just take in all of your environment around you. Uh, it's just a fantastic way to travel that way and just that feeling of being self-reliant and self-contained like you would be backpacking um but being able to you know get out there uh, via a mode of travel that, that allows you to to uh, to run great distances i mean on a dual sport bike um you can go see a good handful of mountain uh, summits you know in a day and you know much less many in a trip and to be able to take in all those various views, you know, just in a, a long weekend is awesome, you know. And backpacking is is great, but it often just allows you to to get up one or maybe two, and you got to turn around and head back out. So there's a real benefit there by comparison.
1: Very cool. So I'm sure our listeners are are. Those who have not been on motorcycles are thinking, yeah, but aren't motorcycles kind of dangerous? I mean, you get way back somewhere and crash, then what happens? So, Travis, share with us a story about a time that things didn't go quite right, and how did you manage that? Um, What kind of advice would you have for our listeners so that they can avoid a similar situation?
0: You know, luckily, I've been very fortunate. There's not been a lot of situations I've got into that... that you know, we're real serious like that. But one that comes to mind is uh a friend of mine and I took our our six fifties. I had a KLR six fifty and he had a DR six fifty. Uh we took those up from from the front range in Colorado up to uh the Leadville area and we were gonna ride Mosquito Pass, which runs from Leadville over to Alma and Alma is between Breckenridge and Fair Play out there. Um, so the Mosquito Pass gets up to a little over 13,000 feet. We decided we're going to ride this. Well, we ended up meeting, uh, up with another, another rider that just happened to be out there and we decided to ride up the, uh, the pass together. And so that was going to be nice, but you know, my, my buddy and I took off and, and went up Mosquito Pass and Mosquito is, uh, it's a fantastic pass, but it's, it's really rocky, um. You have to really be be on your controls and your balance on your bike to keep uh you know it's a four hundred pound bike the KLR is, uh, to keep that thing upright and from toppling over the, the edge of the cliff. It's a lot of switchbacks getting up there of course. Well the two of us, you know, fumbled and, and got up there. Um I think I dropped my bike maybe twice, you know, doing it. Holy cow. And it was it was no harm, no foul. I mean you drop a motorcycle, no not a big idea or big deal. Um but we finally got up to the top and we stopped and we finally got to a point where we could rest and we couldn't hear the other guy that we had met up with. We didn't hear him. We looked over the edge. We couldn't see him. So we waited probably uh, 15 or 20 minutes waiting to hear from a sign of him. Then we decided, well, we'll go out on the ridgeline in opposite directions and see if we can't get a better angle on the road coming up because we thought surely if he's down there, we'll see him. And, We spent probably another 20 minutes doing that and came back and rendezvoused at the the summit again, only to find out that neither neither one of us had seen him. So being that this pass was so rocky getting up there, we really did not want to ride back down that face. We were planning to go up over the summit and down into Alma, like I said. But we couldn't leave this guy. He might have fallen just in in an area where we couldn't see him and he could have been injured. So there's no way we could leave the guy without trying to find out. So then we rode back down. We rode down that, that rocky slope again, rode all the way down to the bottom, and there's no sign of the guy. We can't see him. He's not over the cliff. We don't see tire tracks going off the trail. There is no place the guy could have gone but turned around and gone back out to uh, down to Leadville. So we decided, well, we'll continue on our track. It looks like the guy got out of there just fine. Uh, and we went right back up that rocky scramble and made it up there, luckily without dropping the bikes this time. Um, but it was starting to get later, so we wanted to get down the other side into Alma. So we headed down that that side of the, the mountain and came across our first big snowfield. field. And this was early summer, late spring, and there were still just a, a few good um, snow fields across the trail that we had to navigate around. And navigating around these snow fields meant that we had to get off the bikes, park one, and the two of us had to muscle the bike across the the very edge of the snowfield which was the edge of the the cliff going down and it wasn't a sheer cliff but had we lost a bike down it it would have been miserable trying to get it back up so anyway we uh we get through this the first snowfield we get both bikes across it ride for a little bit more and then come across another snowfield so we have to do the same exact thing and we're beat you know we're We're muscling these bikes. Like I said, they're both 400 pounds. So we're, one person's on the throttle and steering it. The other person's trying to keep the back tire from slipping off the trail. So we get the other two, or the two bikes across the other snowfield and ride along a little bit more. Then, unfortunately, we come to the snowfield that we cannot cross. This one, we just look at every angle of it. There's no way we're getting across this thing. We look down, down the hill, and the only way out, if we were going to continue, is to ride across the tundra and one i don't want to take a bike across the tundra and and damage the the soils but two even if we were crazy enough to do that we weren't even guaranteed we were going to get back out of that valley with you know after we left the trail so we had to make the hard decision to go back through those those godforsaken snowfields that we had just struggled to get oh, through man. and it was it was just one of those those mental uh you just had to to bring yourself together moments and i think these are the moments that create adventures, you know, and that's that's how I had to stop, take a deep breath, and say it out loud. I said, "You know what? We're going to look back on this, and it's going to be funny." I said, "Right now, it totally sucks, but this will be funny someday." So we just had to rewrite our uh, our perception of the of what was going on and happening to us, and dig down deep and get them back through. So, you know, that was we were pushing probably six o'clock at night. And uh, we finally got the bikes through those those other snow fields again, and back up the the way we came, and started heading back out. Well, we got down, you know, real. We went down a different way, which is a really muddy, slippery, nasty slope, and we survived that um, all the way down. I mean, again, we were at thirteen thousand feet, so we probably, um, I would say, we we ran probably two thousand feet vertical elevation down this muddy this muddy run, um, trying to stay upright. Of course, we're all kinds of tired from wrestling those bikes. So we finally made it out to Interstate 70, and I probably have never been so excited to see asphalt uh, on a dual-sport motorcycle. You don't usually want to see asphalt on a dual-sport, but I was happy. So we had a nice cruise down down to I-70 and then out to the front range again, and unfortunately we came up on some congested traffic on the interstate because they were— Redoing a bridge at the time, and and the construction traffic had slowed down. Well, we're sitting in the traffic, and I can smell antifreeze. You know, somebody's uh, engine is boiling over, radiator's boiling over, and I'm thinking, oh, that poor sap. You know, he's sitting here in the stop-and-go traffic, and he's about to lose his radiator. So, a couple more minutes goes by, and I realize I have steam pouring pouring off the bike. You know, up through my helmet, and I was like, oh no, the radiator's me. So
1: <laughs> it's your bike.
0: So we hurried onto the shoulder and got off an exit and shut the bike down. Of course by that time the uh the temperature gauge had pegged and I'm thinking, "Oh, this is not good." Well, long story short, what had happened is when I dropped the bike on one of those uh you know one of those turns coming up Mosquito Pass, I had bent I pushed my fuel tank into my radiator shroud. The radiator shroud there then pushed into my radiator fan, so my radiator fan stopped working. Um and the bike was cool enough coming down the hill and down the, the interstate and everything. And, and only uh, when we got into that congested traffic did it did it rear its head and, and decide to overheat because the fan wasn't there to keep up with it. So we had to uh, make a quick fix, an emergency fix on the side of the road, which basically uh, included just snipping the wires to that fan. And then I had to take a detour all the way home just so I could keep the bike moving. I had to get off that interstate. but we survived it. It was uh, nine or 10 o'clock at night by the time we got home. And uh, and uh we do look back on it and laugh today. But at the time, it was just one of those things, you know, what really made you wonder <laughs> how prepared you were to be in that situation. Because even though it was early, early summer, being out on the mountain with really nothing other than your riding gear at 13,000 feet, you know, can get pretty chilly. And of course, we didn't have enough provisions to to last overnight. So that was uh, the one big one that didn't quite go right, and I definitely learned some things from that.
1: So, what kind of advice would you give our listeners about how to avoid those sorts of situations, or, or should they avoid them?
0: Well, I would—I wouldn't say they should avoid them, um, but certainly some preparation and thought into what could possibly go wrong. You know, we set out on these trips. You know, I should say up until then, we set out on these trips with. Our regular motorcycle gear, maybe one extra layer. We had some snacks in our tank bags, uh, but not much more than that. And we found ourselves in a situation that could have kept us out all night. And not to say we would have died out there, you know, in those situations, but we could have been more prepared. And being more prepared would have been uh, putting some thought into the trip for starters to. Probably bring a little bit more food than we were uh, prepared to consume within the day because that's all we normally would bring is something that keeps us through the day, but you're not thinking you need it for an overnight. Um, potentially a small, real lightweight bag, you know, that you could sleep if you got stuck out there. Um, and then one of the, one of the things I ended up purchasing after that trip was a GPS tracker that would, you know, basically you can hit the button on the thing and it calls for help. If, if one of us had gotten hurt and couldn't get out of there, we could be evacuated. But it also, more so, was a a way to communicate back with our families because we were running really late that day, uh, and they were getting nervous, but we had no cell phone coverage, of course we were. So this tracker allows us just to send a, a ping message through the satellites, you know, to a text you know, as a text message on a cell phone or an email just to say, hey, we're okay. We're just held up for whatever reason. Don't worry about us. We're we're still going to get out of here. So, you know, I think just some preparation, some thought into what could happen and not what you expect to happen. Those, that's the advice that I would give somebody. Certainly, I wouldn't advise them not to get themselves into that situation because that, like I said, I think that's what creates adventure. That's the definition of the word. It's not the it's not the trip as you imagine it. It's the trip out how it actually happens that is the adventure because it never really it doesn't always go the way you you think it's going to.
1: You know, for the sake of the listeners who are not familiar with high altitude and and what all that entails, I want to share a little bit here. Thirteen thousand feet is very high. Um, it's very hard if you're coming from low elevations. To do heavy work at 13,000 feet, it's hard to keep your breath. Altitude sickness is a very real um, situation that a lot of people get into at 13,000 feet. In Colorado at 13,000 feet, you can expect below freezing temperatures um, 365 days a year. It's just almost guaranteed that it's going to be very cold at night, probably in the 20s or below. Hey, all you mountain biking enthusiasts out there, come be a part of the 2015 CycleFest Colorado on May 16th. The CycleFest is a day of festivities supporting the Colorado High School Cycling League. All of the proceeds go to support cross-country mountain biking in Colorado and Wyoming. Special guest Sonia Looney will be there leading an afternoon ride for students and also speaking as a special guest at dinner that night. The dinner is at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, Colorado, once again, May 16th. You can buy tickets at www.coloradomtb.org. That is, Colorado, M is in mountain, T is in trail, B is in bike.org. Come be a part of the fun. wrestling a 650 motorcycle now some people might say a 650 is not that big well compared to some of the road bikes maybe not but a 650 on the dirt that's a heavy bike wrestling a bike up a a rocky quasi boulder field which you had to do repeatedly trying to get it across these snow fields all of this exertion at 13,000 feet um that's no small thing you must have been really exhausted
0: well, we were, and I think it it plays a a major role in your your mental stability at the time. Like I said, when we were up at the top and realized that our only way out was to go back through these long snowfields, and you know we had struggled to get these both of these bikes through these snowfields. It probably took us at least an hour, um, which doesn't seem that long, but again, they're four hundred pound bikes, and you're you're struggling to push them uh, through the snowfield you know, with the the throttle, but you're trying to keep it on the trail because, you know, as soon as you lose it, that getting it back up there uh, to a place where you can get it out is, it it might cost you another three hours, even if you manage to do it. It's just not, it wasn't a situation where we had a good out. So we just had to be mentally ready to conquer that challenge. It was the only option we had. We were exhausted. And, uh, but by the time we got down, we just thought, you know what, we're going to we're going to relax on the way out of here because this right now, this tarmac is the best thing we've ever seen in our lives. You know?
1: <laughs> I'll bet you loved your pillow that night
0: too. I loved my pillow that night. I loved my, the warmth of my house, you know, but that's why we do it. I mean, every adventure sport, that's, that is the key right there. It's, it's what makes you feel alive. It's what makes you smile and laugh when we tell the stories. Uh, and I think if you get out in those situations, you simply need to realize that you will get out, you're going to get out and that you're going to look back on the whole thing and chuckle. And that's what got me through it. You know, it was, uh, it's just a way, the attitude that I had to adopt, you know, once I realized that times were
1: going to be tough for the next few hours. Wow. Well, Travis, um, A lot of our listeners may want to try motorcycles for the first time. They hear a story like that, that might scare them a little bit, but you've also talked about how wonderful bikes are, the freedom that you experience there. Um, What advice would you have for people that are interested in trying motorcycling as an adventure sport for the first time?
0: I think the, the keys are learning. Do a lot of reading. There's plenty of awesome forums out there. I mean, this is a wealth of information. People love to get get together and discuss their sport. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is about. Obviously we love to get together and share stories, but part of those stories, uh, I would say a lot of those stories are the good stuff that didn't go wrong, but you get to learn from the bad stuff that did. So learn, go on the story on the forums and read a lot, ask questions. You know, people on the the forums are extremely helpful. The other key would be to start small, um, People want to go out and buy a big street bike or a big BMW GS Adventure because that's what they see on TV. They see Ewan and Charlie and Long Way Down, Long Way Round. They see them ride around the world, and this is what I'm gonna do. You know, I've never been on a motorcycle, but this is what I'm gonna do. And they spend a lot of money on a lot of equipment that's just too much for them. There's nothing wrong with starting small. If you smart, start with a small dirt bike you know dual sports your thing start with a small dirt bike that you can throw in a pickup truck or trailer to the trail get used to the dirt in fact, I would recommend anybody that wanted to get into motorcycles at all street bikes or dirt always start in the dirt because it teaches you so much more about the bike the balance what the you know what the tires do in, in different uh types of terrain so start there, start small, and then the third thing would be to Learn how to work on your machine um, a credit card and a cell phone can only get you so far if If we had had that radiator problem out um out in there you know in the on the summit of Mosquito pass and it were a debilitating debilitating problem, we could have dealt with it, but we didn't have any cell phones, and there was nobody up there that could take our credit card to help us out of that situation so Learn how to work on your stuff, even if it's basic maintenance and basic trail repairs. Learn how to do it and learn what tools you need to bring with you.
1: So you mentioned starting small. Um, what does that mean, cc-wise?
0: Well, it depends on the person. I mean, if you have no experience um, and you're and you're an adult, I think something around a uh, 200 to 300 cc a four stroke motorcycle would be fine. It's, it can be lightweight. I mean, you might only be talking about, you know, if you're buying something new, you might only be talking about 225 pounds. Um, so you have something that's lightweight, you can handle it. It's not too much power, but it gets you where you need to go anywhere where you need to go. I mean, anywhere where I go on my motorcycles or, you know, any more powerful motorcycles, these little guys can go too. in fact, they make fantastic trail riding bikes just because they're so light and nimble. Um, they're very easy to pick up. I mean, a 400 pound bike will wear you out. Um, I, my adage with that KLR, I mean, I liked my KLR, but I always said if you drop a KLR a third time, I seriously consider going home and just buying another one on Craigslist and leaving it where it lie because I would get so tired picking that darn thing up that, <laughs> that it just got overwhelming. And that's a big reason why I got rid of it. You know, my current bike is a hundred pounds lighter. Uh, And it makes a world of difference. Um, So get a bike that doesn't have too much power and is easy to pick up because you will drop it. Um, And then the third part of the weight of the bike is when you drop a heavy bike, that is just that much more weight crashing down on the part that wants to break. So if you have a light bike, you're much less likely to uh, break parts by dropping it.
1: Or, Or break the rider too, huh?
0: Yeah, you can easily break the rider, that's for sure. And there's nothing like breaking the rider and still having to get a
1: 400-pound bike off the rider's leg that's broken. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> ouch. Well, those are some good ideas. Um, is it expensive to get involved in the sport? Are there ways around the expense of it?
0: Well, as as expensive as you want it to be, and it's as cheap as you want it be, to be within reason. Um, obviously, the cheaper you go... Um, you know, it means you're buying something that's used and it, it, even cheaper means that it may, may not be in very good shape. So, you know, I would say if if you start out, you might start out renting something and just getting a feel for for the dirt and for a lightweight bike and see if you like it. If you like it, start shopping around for something used. I would recommend somebody at least spend at least $1,000 on a dirt bike uh, at a minimum For something that they want to take out on the trail and be reliable. Uh, Anything under that, you're probably looking at something that's antiquated or antiquated and in ill repair. Um, Or maybe it's new and ill repair. (laughs) If you're buying uh, something newer for $1,000, run away. It's not worth it. Uh, Because the problem with these is you can... on the upside they let you get way back in the woods out in the middle of nowhere but if you don't have reliable equipment out in the middle of nowhere then you're going to be hiking a heck of a long way back out because if your equipment fails on you that's your only means of getting out of there
1: oh good advice so travis how does your adventure sport how does motorcycling uh benefit individuals or society as a whole you know at um, the Adventure Sports Podcast, we want to make sure that we're giving back, right? That we're encouraging others and and uh, doing things that are healthy and beneficial for society. So how does riding a dual-sport bike benefit society or the individual?
0: Well, I think, to me, the biggest thing is that riding, at least riding dirt bikes, um but in a sense, riding all motorcycles, riding is healthy, right? So that sounds odd, but for starters, riding gives you back your sanity. You know, if you, like I mentioned earlier, if you have a long day or a long week in the office and you truly love to ride, you can hop on that motorcycle. And even if you're only out for 30 minutes or an hour, it will wash all that away. It truly does. Uh, I can't get that in a car. I can get that backpacking or hiking, um, certainly or exercise, but getting on my motorcycle, it provides that and it just, it's, it fuels that passion of mine and it washes it all away. Uh, it just gives me back that sanity. But on a physical health, uh, front it, if you're back out there doing some aggressive dirt riding, whether it be at a track or back in the woods, you're, you're muscling around a three, 400 pound, uh, vehicle. All day long, and you'd be surprised at what that does to your body, you know, to your leg strength and your your upper body strength, to uh, to muscle that thing around all day. So it really does provide physical health uh, in conjunction with the mental health. Um, but on a societal level, I think that one of the coolest things about the the motorcyclists worldwide is that that is a worldwide group. Once you are on a motorcycle, you become instantly part of a worldwide group that understands you. They understand why you're there. They totally get it. And the cool thing about that is no matter where you are, you can usually trust that another motorcycle will swing by and see if you're okay, if you're in a bit of a bind. Um, I've had it happen to me. You know, you have something break or you may be just pulled over on the side of the, the road or the trail taking a break and Inevitably, a motorcyclist will stop and see if you're okay. Check on you. Make sure that you're good to go, um, because they know that you're going to do the same thing for them down the road when they're in the same situation. Um, there's been plenty of times when I've been riding the canyons of Colorado and and come behind, you know, come across a disabled vehicle on the side of the road in the canyon where I know darn well they don't have cell coverage. And I'll turn the bike around and go check on that person, man, woman, you know, teenager. Doesn't matter. Um, and, and inevitably, I shouldn't say inevitably, but more times than none, I've heard that somebody else on a motorcycle has swung by and stopped and asked for the you know, if they needed help, which is a really cool thing to hear. I think, unfortunately, motorcycles, uh, get a bad rap. I think, you know, there are a few, a few folks out there on motorcycles that, uh, that kind of ruin it for the rest of us. And I think the general public kind of expects us to be a hooligan just because we're on two wheels. And it's really not true. Um, I think when I see motorcyclists giving back to society in those ways, uh, it, it makes me feel a heck of a lot better about how we're portrayed.
1: You know, a lot of our listeners have probably experienced, um, traffic infractions, road rage. You know, or, or just something as simple as someone cutting you off when you're trying to change lanes and on a busy highway. Um, there's something about being enclosed in that steel and glass that uh, it masks identity; it takes away humanness, and people do some kind of raw things. But when you're on a motorcycle, you're outside. You're there. You're still kind of one-on-one with other people, so it makes sense. It would be more interpersonal, more relational. And I would just expect people aren't going to pull the same stunts that they do when they're enclosed in a car.
0: Yeah, I think generally that's true. I think when we're in a vehicle, which granted when I'm in traffic driving to, you know, to and from the the city and in congestion, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better in my truck, you know, where I have protection around me because we all know what can happen in, in congested traffic. Um, But I think part of that, there's a, there, part of the problem is there's a disconnect between vehicles. You know, it's, it's more like you're sitting in your vehicle and you don't see the human inside the vehicle. You just see the vehicle. Oh, that big truck did this. Or, oh, that little car won't get out of the way. Or, you know, we always have this, we're, we're associating the person with the vehicle and not the human. Where on a motorcycle, it's different. You see a human, uh, sitting straddled across that bike and, I think and I hope that people see that human being you know there and that is a human being that's not a motorcycle um in fact I'll find myself if I'm sitting in traffic or just uh riding in between vehicles I'll make sure I actually move my body you know maybe you know move my arm and take a or rest my hand or something but it I think psychologically, it probably makes people aware that, oh yeah, there's a human on that bike, you know, just on a a real basic level, not like they're consciously thinking about it, but it brings the awareness out into the open instead of that's just another piece of glass and steel in front of me. So hopefully that helps keep me alive too.
1: Wow. Well, it sounds like a fantastic sport to get out there and ride. And you know, a lot of people love to ride on the streets, but I really enjoyed this podcast because I really like getting out in nature, and doing that on a motorcycle just sounds like a ton of fun. I think our listeners, um, if they haven't tried it, they should really consider a way to do it. Um, maybe get hooked up with some of these motorcycle forums and find some people that are doing it. You might be surprised how willing people would be to help you sample the sport. So, Travis, do you have any parting words for us today?
0: Uh, only in that I, I really agree with you on the last statement. You really, I, I would love to see people get out there and try it. If you have any inkling that you might be interested in it, get out and try. And you're right about the forums. People are very, uh, sharing. You know, they'll, they'll let you come out and, and take a little tool in their, their dirt bike as long as you're not a complete nut, you know, and, and damage their stuff. Um, but you can go rent motorcycles. There's, I know there's places in Colorado, plenty of places in Colorado, and I'm sure all around the, the world that, You can go rent a a dirt bike and go back and play on it for a day. You can even take them out of state and go if you want to go to another state away if you don't have good riding in your area. And then the other way to do it would be to to go on tours. You can go on uh, dirt bike tours just like you would uh, on a snowmobile. So look into those ways of renting and trying out the sport and do your research on the forums, and I think you'll find that it's a fantastic hobby, and uh, I just warn you that you might get hooked.
1: Well, friends, this has been another Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you very much for your time today. And, Travis, thank you for that illustration of of how dual sport motorcycling can be so much fun. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click Contact Us.